1: Welcome to the table. We discuss issues of God and culture. I'm Darrell Bach, Executive Director for Cultural Engagement at the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. And our guest today is Brian Fisher, co founder and president of Human Coalition. Now, that sounds like quite a gathering of folks. Uh, What's the Human Coalition all about?
2: Human Coalition is about ending abortion city by city through this beautiful mix of technology and business metrics with compassion and grace and tangible help. We, in effect, go and find women online who are at risk to abort their children, uh, bring them into pro-life pregnancy centers, some of which we own and operate, and then our goal is to not only save the child, but get the families plugged into a local church. It's 107 staff members in seven states. It's grown like crazy over the past four years, but God's been very gracious uh, to date. We've rescued 4,166 children from abortion.
1: Oh, wow. That's terrific. Well, let's let's start at the beginning here. My understanding is you were originally a businessman. Is that right?
2: Yeah, it's a patchwork quilt. I'm originally from Pennsylvania. I graduated with a classical piano degree. Okay. And when I got out of school... That sounds like
1: qualifications yeah. for what
2: you're doing. Oh, it's, it's completely related. <laughs> 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 got out of school and realized that uh, musical talent and musical employment weren't necessarily related, so I got a job in Christian Radio, and I was in Christian Radio up in Pittsburgh for about three years, and gradually discovered that Christian Radio pays about the same as unemployment. So, so you at don't some want point, my job. Yeah, no, no. You're doing a great job, <laughs> wonderful job, Yeah. and uh, eventually got recruited into the financial securities world, stocks and bonds and whatnot. So I was uh, the number two person in a startup company that grew very successfully. Uh, and then originally um, thought that that was where I was going to spend my career, but God had other plans. In 2006, uh, my wife and I and our boys moved to Fort Lauderdale, Florida, and I took over the helm of an organization called Coral Ridge Ministries in oh, Fort yeah, Lauderdale, sure. Florida. Uh-huh. D. James Kennedy. Yeah, and that's where my journey into the pro-life world really started. But my early career was all in the in the business world, media and media and finance.
1: Mm-hmm. So, so it was a Coral Ridge that changed your direction, or, or how did you end up at Human Coalition? Because I know that's a more that's a more recent organization.
2: It is. In 2007, we uh, at Coral Ridge we tested an idea. The idea was could we go online and find women who were looking for abortion providers, and give them the option to instead connect with what are called pro life pregnancy centers. There's about 3,000 of these all over the country. Uh, ministries that uh, are gospel-centric and provide help in order for the the mother to choose life. And so we started testing the idea of using for-profit internet marketing, buying ads, if you will, so that when a woman would go online and search for an abortion, she would find us instead. Hmm. And that test was successful. We Hmm. started sending hurting women into pro-life pregnancy centers and making the phones ring. And then in 2007, Dr. Kennedy, the founder of Coral Ridge, passed away, and so I moved to Dallas in 2008. I was the COO of a large marketing agency in in Dallas, but God just oh, was relentless in uh, pressuring me to continue that test. And you know, I, I wish Dr. Bach I had a different uh, story, but I wasn't that interested in doing the work. Hmm. I was excited to be back in the for-profit world. My wife was just getting settled into Dallas. You know, the kids were getting settled into school. I was very busy and uh, just could not understand why God would be uh, bothering me, if you would, instead of a number of excellent other pro-life organizations that are out there. I thought the last thing this country needed was another pro-life nonprofit. But in uh, 2009, I opened up the organization, and on June 22, 2010, we were able to connect with a young woman in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, who was going to have an abortion, and instead we were able to give her the option to go into a pregnancy center there. And she came in with her fiancé, and they saw their little daughter on the ultrasound, and uh, they chose life. Hmm. And today they have a five-year-old little girl. And I got the call that night, June twenty-second, two 2010, from the center saying we just rescued the first human coalition baby from abortion. and. Uh, you know, I tell this story a lot. I'm of German and Austrian descent, which means my emotional range is about the size of a caterpillar, but mm. I got off the phone and just wept mm. because God had condescended not only to save me when I was six years old, but to use me in the act of rescuing a human being from being ripped limb from limb in the womb, and all I had done was complain mm. and very reluctantly become a participant. So that's my red-letter date. I mm. was converted, if you will, mm. from being a reluctant a uh, pro-life Christian to uh, you know to a rabid pro-life Christian, really intent on uh, on helping enough families that we see abortion become unthinkable and unavailable. The organization was very rudimentary for several years, and a, a, a Texas family got wind of us and converted us into a full-time organization in 2012. And so, three guys, three business guys, started working with Human Coalition full-time on February 1st, uh, 2012, in my living room on trade tables. Hmm. And the last four years have just seen uh, extraordinary growth, and, and like I said, we now have 107 folks in seven different states. So,
1: so how does it work? I mean, uh, I, I think you've gotten a little—you glim- gave us little glimpses yeah. about how the first one did. You're you're looking for people who are sor- searching for services of one kind or another, and and basically intercept them on uh, uh, online, and then go from there.
2: Yeah, there's 1.85 million internet searches a month in the United States for abortion terms, wow, 1.85 million, like abortion clinic, RU486, abortion with a coat hanger or abortion at home, 1.85 million times a month those terms are searched. And so from our perspective, that's a huge mission field, but you have to be online. And so our first iteration of the organization was only online. And then we started a call center in order to help pick up the calls and set appointments at pro-life pregnancy centers. We serve twenty one pregnancy centers across the country, but we now own five of our own. Hmm. And so, because we're business guys that are that are running the organization, we measure everything and we test different ways of effectively communicating with women. And the clinics that we own and operate are now rescuing four to five times as many babies um, since they become part of our family compared to before. And so, You know, when when I talk to churches, they sometimes look at me quizzically when I talk about software and metrics and technology and internet (laughs) marketing, but, you know, Psalm 24-1 says, the earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. And so we we believe that the spirit is present in the supernatural as well as the natural. Mm -hmm. And so we want to use every available means, whether it be technological or relational, to, to rescue those children. And so the clinics that we own and operate are now the most effective in the country at, at rescuing families from abortion.
1: Now, um, what what passages um, in your experience in working with this have drawn you into this direction? Obviously, you feel called of God to do this, and you sense that there is a, a, a moral mandate of sorts to pursue it. So, um, so what what passages have drawn you in this direction uh, besides the experiences that you've had?
2: Our key verse as an organization is Proverbs 24, 11, and 12, which says, Deliver those who are being taken away to death, and those staggering to slaughter, oh, hold them back. Hmm. Because if you say we did not know this, does he not consider it who weighs the hearts, and does he not know it who keeps your soul? And will he not render to man according to his work? There's lots of other verses in Scripture which command followers of Christ to be about the business of redeeming and reconciling, but that verse to us is very compelling because it is a command and a warning. Um, it is a command for us to be about the business of protecting innocent life, uh, and it's a warning that ignorance is not an excuse. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's not the typical Psalm 139 pro life verse. Yeah, you know, I, yeah, I get that. But love
1: me in my
2: mother's Yeah, mood. which is beautiful, and right. we've committed that to memory and we, we talk about it frequently. But there's no question that biblically speaking, God is the author of all life, and he also has a deep desire for innocent life to be protected and maintained. And so in a culture today, uh, which is largely a culture of death, it really is the church of Jesus Christ, which is the the bastion, the representation of uh, the author of life, and uh, and we're mandated to protect it. Uh, we talk about Exodus 1. Mm-hmm. You know, It's a fascinating passage. You have two Hebrew midwives, Shipra and Pua, who are commanded by Pharaoh to kill infant Hebrew boys, um, and they refuse. And uh, one could argue they lie to Pharaoh about why they why they didn't do it, and God honors them. God blesses them and gives them family, Scripture says. And uh, we see um, Rahab protecting spies' lives. There's this constant reminder of God desiring for us to protect innocent life. And obviously, the. The ultimate example is Christ Himself, who came and sacrificed His own life for ours. So, uh, you know, that's woven throughout all of Scripture, and if we if we preach the gospel, um, we we have to also preach as part of that um, our Creator God and the the fact that He creates each and every one of us in His image.
1: Yeah, the the passage that I'm familiar with because I do work in the Gospel of Luke is the passage of the fetus of John the Baptist mm-hmm. leaping in the womb uh, when Mary and Elizabeth come together and, and Elizabeth interpreting that experience is, uh, as something that uh, is acknowledged by God with the additional promise in the background that this um, baby, John the Baptist, will be filled with the Holy Spirit from the womb. So Luke is obviously making a play on, on what's going on here. And, and so you see the value of uh, of a fetus in in this text um, that allows us to think through uh, the way this budding image of God uh, creation that God is in the process of forming um, how that how that works. So these passages are are important because they do show this grounding of life from the very beginning, even before birth. Uh, as something that uh, people should be concerned about, particularly in a culture, a Greco-Roman culture, where mm-hmm. infanticide, where if a uh, if a girl was born to a family, oftentimes she was just left out to die because she wasn't socially useful. Um, we sometimes think that the situations that we're in are new; they're actually quite old. That's right. Um, uh, it, it are, is going on. So, so this kind of ministry is is pretty important in terms of thinking about. Uh, what's involved. So so let's talk about so, so you uh, what would be the way to say this? God just kind of relentlessly kept this topic in front of you and you eventually said, okay or
2: yes, uh, you know I'm, I'm, I don't have a personal experience with abortion. I grew up in a great Christian home. My family members are all believers. I had a very boring testimony for which I'm very grateful. Uh, I think it first became real to me in 1999 when my first son was born. Uh, I was holding him in my arms just hours after his delivery, and I remember thinking, just for a fleeting moment, you know, we abort him. I I wasn't a kid person at that point, I certainly am now, but uh, I think my head and my heart connected to where the the logical horror of abortion connected to my heart actually holding a a tiny infant baby who had no ability to take care of himself. And that was the, the catalyst for me just getting educated over the next seven or eight years about abortion and what it has actually done to rip apart the fabric of, you know, the American family. You know, 58.5 million Americans killed by abortion since 1973. It's about 2,800 a day. We're still mm. averaging that. It's a leading cause of death in America. Wow! And outside of the Holocaust of of death, the, the ramifications to women, depression and suicide and physical illness and problems with other pregnancies, the, uh, the impact on men, uh, depression, violence, relational issues are so so astronomical, I think we have a hard time conceptualizing to what extent abortion has really harmed, has harmed the culture. I didn't know any of that. I mean, in 1999, I, d- I just didn't know. And so God began educating me, and so by the time He called me into this work full time, uh, I think He had taken me through a crash course, mm-hmm. and uh, you know that that education continues today. I still have a ton to learn.
1: Yeah, the the, the uh, fallout from all this is something we're probably going to come back to and talk about on the other side of the break because I think that's something most people don't even think about it's just it's a single decision but it's a single decision with consequences all over the place mm-hmm. um, so uh, so what is it you actually do now is you help run the company and and develop it and
2: yes I'm the co-founder and president so uh, I spent a good amount of my time fundraising as you can might imagine because mm-hmm. it's a nonprofit uh, and running the operations of the organization our our headquarters is in Plano Texas mm-hmm. Uh, but we own pro-life clinics in Grapevine, Texas, and Pittsburgh, and Raleigh, and we're about to start in Atlanta. And then we serve another 21 clinics in different states across the country. And because of that business background, we have developed um, a, a formula, if you will, that actually articulates how we can end abortion in cities by reaching enough women and saving enough babies. And uh, that's how we're, we're growing now in our, in our uh, ministry, because there's such a hunger in major cities across the country to see abortion ended and to have a strategic plan which can be measured and evaluated um, is a huge blessing to many churches. So, uh, I mean, obviously you own some of these clinics, but you also have d- established, I guess, associate relationships
1: with some of them. Mm-hmm. How does that How does that happen? Do they contact you, or, or how does that work? They
2: do now just because we're one of the larger pro-life organizations in the country, but initially we, we just called them and we said, hey, look, if we can get your phones to ring mm-hmm. with women who are looking for abortion providers but are willing to talk to you instead, will you take the calls? Mm-hmm. And, of course, there are pregnancy centers all over the country that That's that's exactly what they want to do. And mm-hmm. so they find us because we will provide them essentially with the internet marketing to go mm-hmm. find women in their area at risk mm-hmm. to abort, and we provide them call center support. We'll actually set the appointments for them. Mm-hmm. And so all that they have to do is meet with the clients and do the ultrasounds and provide long-term care for them so that we can... We can save those babies. It's so, a great is there
1: software
2: that? We're, that mm-hmm. uh,
1: okay, now, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no. it's very can, high tech. <laughs> can you, uh, you know, I feel like I'm talking to Apple now. Can we talk about this? Uh, <laughs> sure. um, you know, yeah. uh, 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 so there's there's software that that uh, that helps you locate these folks?
2: Yes. Uh, if you were to come into our offices in Plano, you would think you were walking into a tech company. It's a very strange nonprofit. Obviously, many of our offices are medical, and so you have mm-hmm. nurses and ultrasound technicians and counselors. But in Plano, we have uh, software developers, internet marketers, um, statistical analysts. Uh, we have sociologists. We have people who are focused on how to, how to help women make that choice for life in a way that serves them. Well, and because all of our uh, data is collected on a, a very large software platform, you know we have the ability to test different ideas. Um, you know, one one idea we just tested here in Texas, we changed the color of one of the counseling rooms. Hmm. We we developed some tests in the area of atmospherics. Atmospherics is basically how to how do nonverbal factors influence our decision making every time i walk into best buy mm-hmm. i'm a victim of atmospherics right <laughs> the lighting is great and the colors and the layout of the product all all you know suck me in mm-hmm. well our decision making processes are um, in, are done in the same way, even in an issue as serious as, as life. And women tend to be more highly impacted by atmospherics than men. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. yeah. shocker. <laughs> a surprise, right? Yeah. And it'll take us a while to figure that out. Yeah. Um, but the women on staff continue to validate that. So we um, tested the idea of changing the color and furniture arrangement of one room to create an atmosphere of calm. Hmm. And we left the other counseling room, which was very nice, alone. We realize that a woman who is going to abort and does, her primary emotion is anxiety. Mm -hmm. The woman who is going to abort but then chooses not to, her primary emotion is calm. Hmm. So what sort of things could we create that give her a sense of calm so that we can serve her better? And so we call it the blue room test. Hmm. The renovated room. Gave us a fifteen percent increase in our effectiveness at counseling for life. Oh wow! Just because of the color of the room. Wow! That's the power of using software and data and analytics to supplement compassion and grace and tangible help.
1: Hmm. There's so many things that are fascinating about this. So, so you help manage this. uh, What do you primarily do now? Just are are you primarily helping? establish these contacts with these centers as well as just overseeing all the business aspects of what's going on?
2: Or I do, and I travel a fair amount. Um, I speak all over the country for different organizations and for ourselves and churches and, and banquets and uh, pro-life events, uh, broadcasting the message that abortion can in fact be ended. Uh, that, that comes to a surprise to many people, but when you pull out the numbers and the data and you realize that we can, in fact, dramatically improve the number of at-risk women that we speak with, and we can dramatically improve the number of babies we rescue, and we can dramatically improve the church's involvement in this work practically, uh, you know, the message starts to resonate. Whenever I speak, I say, as a Christian, it's a tricky balance, but on one hand, we have to be as aggressive as possible to rescue every family that we can from abortion, on Mm -hmm. the other hand. We have to be as aggressive as possible at extending the grace and forgiveness of Jesus Christ to the tens of millions of people who have aborted a child. Mm -hmm. Both those things have to happen in the life of a Christian. Uh, It's a difficult balance, and frankly, we don't always get it right. Mm -hmm. But by my estimation, there are probably 60 million adults today in America who are the parent of an aborted child, and that is another tremendous mission field for the church. So I have the privilege of addressing both of those issues when I, when, I, when I move around the country. When I'm at home in Plano, I spend a good amount of my time casting vision and, and frankly, setting our two- and three-year plans up and getting the team ready to, to go to the next level. And, you know, we're opening up new cities. We're in Atlanta, so I spend quite a bit of time there. It's an absolute joy. I, you know, could I have ever predicted in a million years that this is what God would have me do? no. Um, it's hard work, and you know, it's not very popular in many cases, but uh, you know, when, when you can see 4,100 children whose lives have been protected and preserved because of what God is
0: doing, uh, you know, it makes all the difference in the world. This episode is brought to you by The Truce Podcast. I'm sure you've been there. You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like,
1: If you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican.
0: Huh. That raises an interesting question. I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Isinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com.
1: Yeah, it's amazing ministry in many ways. I've got all kinds of questions about the type of women that you minister to and the impact of of what it is that you've done. I imagine you have tons of testimonies from women who walked in thinking they were going to make a decision to abort a child and decided to keep it, and now on the backside of that feel uh, very positive about the decision that they made. Uh, What happens to those children, first of all, and then secondly, you know? uh, I imagine you have some stories about some of the women who've decided to for life as opposed
2: to aborting a child. It's just wonderful to see those stories of transformation. You know, I mean, we got a lot of emails and complaints saying, "Well, you're just increasing the population, and what if the child is born into a drug abused home, and you're just setting them up for failure?" But you know, really, when you see a mother who was in a very insecure crisis situation come into a system of care where we will link arms with her and not only walk with her through the crisis, but walk with her until she's stabilized, um, it's 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 amazing. It's the hands and feet of Christ in a very practical application. The vast majority of women who choose life choose to parent. Mm-hmm. Uh, some choose to place for adoption, but it's actually pretty rare hmm. because abortion is, uh, is really seen culturally as the last form of birth control, mm-hmm. and so the situations that you might envision as being worthy of adoption are not as plentiful as you might think. Many women have the ability and the wherewithal to parent their, their child, and those that do place for adoption you know, have uh, wonderful experiences with that as well. Uh, probably one of my favorite stories, and it's just from the last two weeks, hmm. is at our clinic in Pittsburgh, a woman came in. She wanted uh, to have an abortion, but she was willing to come in and speak with us. And she saw her baby uh, on the ultrasound. She thought she was about five weeks pregnant. Mm. She was 16 and a half weeks pregnant Mm. with her little son. Mm -hmm. And she's married. Mm -hmm. She has two children already, but both she and her husband are out of work and Mm -hmm. they're flat broke. And so she said, you know, I I can't afford the child. We hear that um, often. And so our team up there said, well, look, if we can help you put your resume together, if we can connect you with a job placement service. If we can help you um, receive health insurance and get on food stamps, you know, is this a situation where we can keep the child? And she said yes, and she chose life. Now, later that week, one of our staff members sat with her for three and a half hours in the welfare office, and when the welfare office tried to give the client the cold shoulder, our advocate said, we're waiting until you help us, and they walked out of that office with health care and food stamps, and a resume. Yes. So that story will be yet to be continued, but the the, the woman felt secure. Mm-hmm. She felt as if somebody had stood in the gap for her. And she was about midway through her pregnancy? She's at this about, time? Yes, about 16 and a half, 17 weeks at this point. Mm-hmm. So she'll deliver a little boy mm-hmm. in another 20 weeks or so, and that family uh, will continue to grow, and Lord willing, we'll be able to help them get jobs and get on their feet. You know, in many cases, people who are struggling. Uh, don't have the strength to, to advocate for themselves. Yes. They need somebody to stand in the gap and get it done for them. Mm-hmm. Here, she would have been lost for another 30 days mm-hmm. without some basic necessities, but it was only because of the intervention of Becky, our caregiver, that, that she was able to get taken care of.
1: So these caregivers are not lawyers or anything like that. When you say the phrase representation, we're not talking about formal no, it's not legal, legal
2: no. representation. Mm-mm. It's just somebody standing in the gap saying, I will help quarterback your care and you know the needs are plentiful we're we're in essence testing this program it's a new program for us in pittsburgh and then it's going quite well we'll populate it to our other clinics but you know they're vetting other ministries and services that are provided in the city mm-hmm. so you know women need food they need mm-hmm. maternity housing sometimes mm-hmm. they need drug and alcohol abuse counseling lots of different needs that a woman might have it is really incumbent on us as followers of Christ to go the extra mile with these hurting people. Mm-hmm. And so we vet those organizations. Some of them are church, some of them parachurch, some of them civic. And then we bring the best of breed of those services together and, and are designing care programs for clients that need them. Not everybody – not every client needs them. And that way the client knows that there is somebody who is who is working on their behalf to alleviate their pain.
1: So these caregivers, are they are they volunteers, or are they part of another organization that provides them? How, how there are
2: no, they're Human Coalition employees. Although we are looking at because it appears as if the demand is going to be quite high, oh, recruiting volunteer yeah. caregivers. Yep, yeah.
1: yeah. No, so, uh, so if they work with Human Coalition, have you? I'm I'm going one step back. So do you do they come to you and you train them? I mean, Mm -hmm. how how do you get them into the mix?
2: Yeah, the woman that we have chairing the program up there comes from this arena. She comes from social work and from designing care systems. So we we got very fortunate. Uh, Her name is Becky, and she's just tremendous. So she is in effect charged with building the program. Hmm. And uh, so far, the program has been extremely successful, and we we anticipated going to have to turn into a mixture of paid staff plus. Volunteers who become trained mm-hmm. in giving that care and advocating for the client.
1: Okay, so I've got software people who work <laughs> software on the one hand. Yeah. I've got uh, social work people who come alongside the woman uh, on another. I'm assuming you have counselors who help, who are trained in psychology, et cetera, to help interact with the women as the, as they're in the process of making the decision. Um,
2: what other kinds of human beings do you have in human coalition? I mean, uh, we have pastors. Okay, we have a church outreach uh, team. Uh, we don't think abortion can be ended without the church, mm-hmm. and so we <laughs> invented a way to measure uh-huh. the church's involvement in in the act of ending abortion. We actually built a formula and a way to measure. You know, Dallas is an example. We now know what percentage of churches in Dallas are actually engaged in some meaningful work to end abortion. That team's job is to build relationships with pastors and priests and, and church leaders and uh, drive a deeper engagement in protecting innocent human life. So we have our, we have our pastoral team. Uh, we have our fundraisers. We have attorneys. Uh, this work requires substantial that legal work. That was my next question. Yep. I figure a lawyer's got to show up somewhere. We got a few of those running around. Yeah, a few lawyers. And then uh, you know we have some wonderful speakers, and we have a, a large marketing team. You know our Facebook community has over a million people from 47 different countries worldwide. So that that's a team that has to be managed, and and uh, the marketing is a big deal. So. You know, it it it's a very odd nonprofit. (laughs) Yeah uh, are
1: there are there any medical people involved? There are. Yeah.
2: In the medical clinics that we own and operate, we have uh, nurses uh, and RDMSs and ultrasound technicians, depending on the clinic. Hmm. And then a medical doctor has to oversee all the ultrasound work.
1: Okay, so so you've got. I mean you got a little community. I mean yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, I, I've got I mean, where else where else do you have software and social work and medical teams and lawyers yeah. and, and and business people and pastors? I mean, what are you missing?
2: Well, we're missing a few parts. We gotta figure out the governmental piece, yeah. Uh-huh. That, that's a ways off. But at some point we're gonna have to start thinking about how to engage legislatively, laws follow culture. It's great to be changing the culture, but we also have to be working on the laws. Uh, and there's some things in the works for the next two or three years, but I, I couldn't be prouder of the team. It's 107 people who get up every morning and work in some of the most desperate, dire situations in a very unpopular space. I mean, mm-hmm. let's face it, um, you know, we're never going to be given awards for the work that we do here in this, on this earth. Um, and and to have 107 people who are committed to that and, and jazzed by it and want to see babies saved and want to see families transformed. It's just a very special team.
1: Okay, now I imagine someone listening to this going, "This is, uh, this is interesting. This is fascinating. I know uh, abortion is, is a is a problem uh, that a lot of people choose it. I'm at a church. I lead a church. I'm on a staff. Maybe I'm not senior pastor, but somewhere. Uh, and you've tweaked my interest. Um, so, so what uh, what would you say to someone who's who's basically trying to figure out, all right, so what might be a next step for me?
2: Education is the first step. You know, we I wrote a book last year called Deliver Us From Abortion, Awakening the Church to End the Killing of America's Children. Mm. I went on a, a year-long exploration to try to understand why, on the whole, churches are not directly, intimately involved in ending abortion. And they haven't been for 43 years. There are numerous exceptions, and Dallas is replete with them. But there are too many churches that do not engage this issue uh, because they fear it's political or they fear other other parts of it. So my exploration to that suggested that in order for a layperson or a church leader to really become a positive force in their church to engage them is, is to get educated. Uh, the basic facts of what abortion is and what it has done to this country are by and large unknown. Mm-hmm. And we we don't get convicted emotionally until we until we have the facts, right? We have – or a story or, or some something that moves us. In my case, it was just studying the issue and understanding the degree to which it's impacted the American family. But for others, it's a relative who's aborted a child. Mm-hmm. And they have seen the devastation that that's wrought on their family, and they want to save other families from that devastation. In some cases, it's, you know, the statistics – of our own cities, how many children are losing each year in major cities across the country. But get educated. There are wonderful resources out there that can start the process of that, of education. And then uh, share that. Get into the small groups. Get into a Sunday school. I'm teaching a Sunday school in my class, you know, right now about abortion. Um, We provide training. We provide a Pro-Life 101. It's a three-hour course that can be done, you know, at one time or spread over three weeks that give the basics, the history of abortion, what the Bible says about abortion and what we can do to end it. And then it's really connecting with folks in the church who God is calling. Mm-hmm. And this is pivotal. Mm-hmm. You know, candidly, if the senior pastor does not view this as a pivotal issue, it's an uphill battle. Mm-hmm. Well, I'll just be shoot straight yeah. about that. Yeah, sure. But that doesn't mean work can't be done. And finding other like minded people in the church and coalescing together uh, is really important. You need a team, and that team has to be humble, they have to serve the church, they have to work within the authority of the church. Uh, and yet at the same point um, expressing the the dire need that exists because of abortion. You can get educated and form a group of like-minded people, you can get a lot done. So uh, if someone wanted to contact you Mm -hmm. because they got interested, could they do that? Yes. Just email us at contact Mm -hmm. at humancoalition.org, contact at humancoalition.org. We have a great team. This is all they do is they serve churches, and they help churches uh, move along the path to being involved in protecting families and ending abortion, and they would love to to speak with you. So contact at humancoalition.org. Okay. Now, um, I said we would discuss this. Let, let's think about
1: the impact of making a decision to abort a child. You've talked about the devastation that, that's involved here and the human impact, and I and I think that some people say – maybe think of this, obviously not very deeply – and go, okay, I make a decision not to have a child, I have a surgical procedure, and it's done.
2: Mm-hmm. But it's not. It's not. Well, you can imagine. Uh, the horror of accidentally killing a human being, a car accident or some sort of tragic event where you are accidentally responsible for taking the life of a human being. You, you never get over that. You move on, but it is is a—it is something that deeply influences you. We don't escape that just because the child is small and not seen. Mm-hmm. And whether you're the father or the mother or somebody who coerced the mother or a relative who was pushing for abortion. Um, We have to come to grips with what does it mean to be responsible for taking the life of another human being. And it impacts people different ways. Look, there will be many, many women who say, I had an abortion and I'm better for it. Mm -hmm. That exists. Mm -hmm. I'm not here to debate that. What I'm Mm -hmm. here to say is there are millions of women who have aborted and have suffered and regretted. Mm-hmm. And had somebody stood in the gap for them when they had that abortion and said, I'll help you through this so that you your child way. can live, you would have a whole different situation. Mm-hmm. We have numerous people on staff who are parents of aborted children. Mm-hmm. And the men, several men on staff, would be the first to tell you that they are forgiven, they know Christ has redeemed them, they have repented, but it still hurts. Mm. And it's going to hurt until they go to glory and they meet their child. So, uh, so how many of these women are single and need
1: additional help beyond the decision? I, I would take it that the bulk of most, them. yeah,
2: yeah, eighty-five percent of all abortions are performed on uh, unplanned pregnancies. Okay, so only fifteen percent are where people just don't want the child, or there's a diagnosis that they don't like or whatnot. But eighty-five percent, and the overwhelming majority of those women are single or not in some sort of secure relationship. So this gets back to sexual ethic and how do we define that in America today? But uh, if we really want to end abortion, you must you must stem unplanned pregnancy, mm-hmm. which means we have to we have to get back to defining what a proper healthy family in the context of biblical marriages. Mm-hmm.
1: And. Uh... Uh, are the uh, is there a demogra- additional demographic in terms of age? I'm, I'm assuming you're dealing with a lot of, in some cases teenage mm-hmm. women in early 20s. That's the bulk of it. or yeah,
2: the average age of a human coalition client is around 24. okay? It's a little bit older than I would have thought and then many people think. Uh, abortion is, is a high school issue in some cases, but it is predominantly a young woman issue, an early 20s woman who is either in college or out of college or, or whatnot in, in the career force. And uh, the demographics outside of that differ by city. Mm-hmm. So we work in Memphis. Mm-hmm. vast majority of women who are at risk to abort there are African-American underprivileged. Here in Dallas, it's a mix of white Hispanic uh, in the Grapevine area who are not necessarily underprivileged. Mm-hmm. They, the abortion demographics tend to reflect the area in which we're working. Mm. In Miami, you know, largely Latin American by, you know, in the thousands, Miami is one of the top five abortion capitals in the country. So th- that's important for church goers and Christ followers to understand because it is very possible to minister to people who look and act uh, like you mm-hmm. uh, who are also dealing with either having had an abortion or at risk to have an abortion.
1: Now, um, I'm going to deal a little bit with the uh, – I don't know if the politics is – but the rhetoric associated with the politics of this. Um, the oftentimes, what's said is is that you're dealing in areas of of, of human choice, um, and you know, you're pro-choice or you're pro-life, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. How do you help people sort through that rhetoric um, and and how they are hearing it framed about? You know, it's my body; you're taking away my rights. All those kinds of things.
2: Well, the good news is there is actually no logical, factual argument for the abortion. Uh, whether you're looking at it philosophically, ethically, medically, biblically, uh, in all four of those arenas, the facts are irrefutable and quite clear. The challenge is, and you're alluding to it, is that we don't know how to defend the position for mm-hmm. life. Scott Klusendorf wrote a phenomenal book, and I recommend it to anybody uh, because it's highly readable and just extremely well done, called The Case. For life, the case for life, Scott Klusendorf. You can get it on Amazon. It is probably the best pro life apologetic I've ever read, and mm-hmm. I've read most of them uh, because he, he accurately describes how to defend human life um, whether you have a Bible or not, whether mm-hmm. or not you're talking to a believer or not. And so, you know, for example, one of the arguments that you heard, My Body, My Choice, is the reference to what is growing inside the womb is not actually somebody else's body. Well, of course, medically, it is somebody else's body from conception onward. So that brings up the question is, well, why are we discriminating Mm -hmm. against somebody who's just smaller than we are? Mm -hmm. So do we devalue an infant because they're smaller than a teenager? Mm -hmm. Well, of course not. We value their lives the same. Well, then why do we devalue a life that's smaller than an infant? That doesn't make logical sense. And Klusendorf walks through the four major arguments that can be applied philosophically. Uh, science completely backs up the pro-life position, and I think you know, the Bible obviously does. And so a little bit of education, a little bit of training, you know, Human Coalition offers it. Klusendorf's book is great. Arm you to where you can disarm any pro-abortion argument. Mm-hmm. They are all built on lies and fallacies and misinformation and a little bit of truth goes a long, long way. You know,
1: I'm, I'm, I'm on the board at Wheaton College and of course we're in the middle of a, of a uh, legal case right now in which the health care mandate to, uh, um, to require the supply of certain... Medical procedures, etc., that that could result in in abortifacia mm-hmm. situations. That kind of thing is something that uh, has been a part of what we've studied. I came into the task force knowing a little bit of the theology, but knowing zero of the science. Uh, and what was interesting was the scientific material that we were reading that talks about how scientists. Uh, define the beginning of life and when life begins, that kind of thing. And, and although there is a spectrum there, it's very interesting that our, that our laws have not caught up with where the mm-hmm. science is on this, even, even the looser definitions of where life begins, because it's pretty clear that you're dealing with an independent entity all of whom's base functions of life reside within that entity from a very, very, very early point on, long before where our law allows abortion to take place. So that um, when you combine the scientific with the moral and legal elements, there is – There, there is very clearly a line that has been long passed. That's correct. By the time we exercise what we have allowed legally, our rights of abortion to perform.
2: Well, and ironically, there are actual two laws on the federal books that contradict each other to that regard. Interesting. Uh, Roe v. Wade obviously makes abortion legal uh, at any stage of development from, for all nine months and it's you know it's up there with China and North Korea in terms of its permissiveness. We are the top four permissive abortion countries on the planet. There's another law in the books called Lacey and Connor's Law. You might recall that Lacey Peterson uh, was murdered by her husband Scott in San Francisco. Her body washed up in San Francisco Bay along with the body of their unborn child Connor. Hmm. He was charged with double homicide. Hmm. So he did not have the right to kill Connor, but Lacey did. Mm -hmm. Same gestational age of the child, Mm -hmm. and Bush passed a law that made, I think it was 65 acts of violence against an unborn child at any stage of development illegal, Hmm. except abortion. So you have one law that says that unborn life from any stage of development should be protected from violence, and you have another law that says that's not entirely true. We can kill that life at any stage of development. Mm. That quandary presents a moral dilemma, which, you know, any legal scholar or, frankly, any common sense person would say, you know, this is, this is ridiculous and it, it makes no sense. And furthermore, it propagates the idea that the value of the preborn child's life is somehow determined by the mother. Mm-hmm. And not by other institutions. Yeah, I I think the 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 subtle argument in
1: here that that people don't um, process is they think that because the child is dependent on the mother for well-being while in the womb that somehow that disqualifies it from being considered life, and yet what what I'm What I was reading in the science says, no, actually, all the we continue to protect a baby after it's born because it's it's dependent uh, on parents in order to survive. Uh, But we regard that somehow as life, and where we are in the womb is somehow not, and and it's very inconsistent. As I said, all the all the scientific elements that make that person an independent entity are in the person while they're in the womb.
2: That's right. Yeah, from conception onward. I mean, yeah, the exactly. zygote, a uh, pluripotent. Potent cell contains all the DNA, the forty-six chromosomes, gender, hair color, all that is determined, and left untouched. All the zygote does is develop into more mature forms of a human being. You and I were once zygotes, and biblically speaking, we were as valuable then as we are now.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and most people don't even think about that; they just think right. about it in terms of the the choices that are made and that kind of thing. And so there is there's a lot that can happen in education. One final question: We're rapidly running out of time. Um, uh, if a church wanted uh, is motivated to um, to do something uh,
2: one what do you advise and two how do they contact you? Yeah. One is through that process of educating your congregation. We have worked with dozens of churches all over the country, and time and time again, we learn that is the best way to get started, get everybody on an even playing field about what what it is the church wants to do. And two is to absolutely reach out to us, because we can provide the resources and the training to do that at at contact at humancoalition.org. If they're already involved, they might financially support a pregnancy center. That's awesome. They might provide post-abortive healing Bible studies. That's awesome. They might provide uh, tangible ways of helping women in crisis pregnancies. That is awesome. Foster
1: care of some kind. Foster
2: care, adoption services, yeah. maternity housing, and and frankly, hundreds of churches across the country do that sort of work. I think the key point is make sure that what you as a church are engaged in is still relevant mm-hmm. and is moving the ball towards reducing abortion in your city. Mm-hmm. Um, if that's what the, where the church is going. There's a lot of techniques, there's a lot of things that are being done that, frankly, are not the best use of time. And that's where we can provide substantial help and counsel just because, frankly, we've seen most of what goes on. Okay. Well, that that's terrifically helpful,
1: and oh man, there are tons of questions beyond that I could ask. But we're we've we've done a I think a good initial job in 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 surveying the field. I, I think of it as being one of the more potentially meaningful ways of social engagement that a church can. Um, can undertake where, where really you are dealing with life and death from the very beginning. I mean, not to, and, and 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 multiple levels, the physical life as well as the spiritual life of people, and that that's terrifically valuable thing to undertake. And so I can't think of a more valuable ministry to undertake in in many ways. Well, our time is. Uh, basically gone. Brian, I want to thank you for taking the time to come in and chat with us about what is an area that I think many people have a gut feel about in the church but really are a little bit at a loss to know, okay, what does this actually look like? And if I wanted to help, what could I possibly do? Those kinds of things. And there are all kinds of way, I can see. You know, you need technicians. You need That's right. Sociologists. You need counselors. That's you right. need pastors. You need lawyers and doctors and nurses. That's a pretty it's a coalition. pretty wide swath. That's I can right. see why it's called human coalition. Yeah. Uh, so, thank you again for coming in and helping us with this t- difficult topic. Thank you. And thank you for being a part of the table. And we look forward to having you back again soon.
0: Thanks for listening to The Table Podcast. For more podcasts like this one, visit dts.edu slash the table. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth. Love well. This episode was brought to you in part by the Truce Podcast.